This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, operating on a skeleton crew, Donald, Patrick, and I sit down to have basically a freeform conversation about one of our primary fixations that we have on this show, the alt-right. I'm Jake, I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Patrick. I'm Patrick. And I'm definitely not a phrenologist. And also Donald. Hey, it's Donald. From also from Communist League, and um, I have a weird nerdy obsession with tonight's topic, which is the alt right. Yeah, why don't you, uh, as our kind of like resident alt right expert, why don't you, uh, why don't you start things off? Well, to be honest, I know more about historical fascism that was actually a mass movement than the alt than the alt-right, and I guess what people call the alt-right is it's basically been dividing into different sects already, and it's really not a movement like some people think it is. It's really just kind of a weird youth subculture. There's different different layers to it. I definitely know, like, some things about it, because I've read some of their stuff, like... Yeah, I, I cannot be really, like, bothered to, like, follow this stuff super closely, um... Because, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's like, it's, it's enervating enough, like, watching the left, (laughs) but it's like, watch, like, the, all the, all, like, the same bullshit, but even, like, shittier version of it, like, on the right. Like, it's good for some laughs, but, I don't know. Groupings within the alt-right, I would say. There's, like, just, like, your general, like, who I'd call MAGA chuds. I think uh, Chapo Trap House coined that term, I'm not sure, but, um. MAGA chuds are just kind of like your you, like your really patriotic Trump supporter. You know, they think the Democrats are the real racist, and they think Hillary is the real racist and stuff. And um, they're reading the stuff like Breitbart and Alex Jones. And um, then you have you know the more the actual people who are straight up white nationalists like Richard Spencer and Jared Taylor and um, Matthew Heimbach and um, these people are, they've, they've kind of been saying that they're a true alt-right, and um, all these other people are just uh, the alt-light. They're, they're still kind of cucked, and um, as they would say, I guess, because they haven't, um, one of the things is they haven't named the Jew, I guess. That's like their big um, gateway drug is like the, what they call the JQ, Jewish question. Like, unless you've like recognized like the Jewish conspiracy, you're not like a true alt-right person. So where does all this shit come from again? I'm trying to like, it seemed to have emerged like a few years. Like it seemed to start with like the uh, the MRAs, and like a fun yeah, like a few years. It seemed like it, it was. It seemed like it came out of Gamergate. Really, it was. I'm not sure exactly how Gamergate started. I don't even know exactly what it is. Other than a lot of people were mad about feminism infiltrating video games. Apparently, uh, I I unfortunately actually. I unfortunately know about Gamergate. Yeah, what do you know about Gamergate? So basically it started off with this one video game indie developer named Zoe Quinn uh, had a little spat with her boyfriend and her boyfriend wrote this long-ass post basically detailing how she supposedly cheated on him with a bunch of guys, specifically people in like the games industry and reviewers and that sort of thing. Um, and this was seen as like a big deal because you know it was like uh, she was sleeping with a report uh, games journalist in order to get like a good review of her stupid game or whatever just like a massive shitstorm of course the the accusations turned out to be false overall in that but this didn't stop like a whole bunch of people from just like have getting into pissing matches online and that sort of thing over it and it becoming like a weird cultural issue 
since there was like sort of a slut shaming element to the whole affair. It seems like it kind of created this whole anti SJW subculture online and uh with people like Milo like people like Milo and Sargon of Akkad. Yeah, it kind seems of like a-, make a whole career out of just shitting on um SJWs and feminists. And they're not even like you know, they're not fascists per se, but they like are very like they're very anti feminist, very anti what they call SJW. Yeah, they seem to be like really concerned that like there's a conspiracy to make like Laura Croft's boobs smaller or something. You know, like the, it's it seems like very much like a reaction to sort of um kind of like, you know, semi-academic like left-wing cultural critique of like yeah. aesthetics of video games. Um, yeah, I yeah, guess um, that's my sort of my pedestrian observation. Basically, yeah, it seemed like basically you just got a lot of internet nerds who were mad about their video games supposedly being influenced by feminism and i guess you have kind of this this demographic of you know petty bourgeois white dudes who felt like gaming was like their escape from like the world and now feminism was creeping into that finally it's like because they they blame feminism on not being able to get girls or whatever and so when they see feminists complaining about like how sexist video games are they saw it as like their only um kind of safe space from feminism being infiltrated yeah and then that, there's yeah, another that, i think yeah. go on what are you gonna say well, i was gonna say that gamergate's one aspect of what i think the alt-right kind of came out of because that kind of created this whole um youth internet culture of doxing people and like going after feminists online and making shitty youtube videos that are just like longer rants about how you know feminism is evil and kind of brought people in the cultural Marxist type conspiracy theories that usually you wouldn't have heard before. And right. um, but there was another thread that kind of intersects with it, which is um, kind of like the classic paleoconservatives, I guess. People like uh, Richard Spencer basically was a um, paleoconservative. Yeah, basically it seems like you have these um, kind of paleoconservative types um, who wrote for National Review and whatnot. And um, I use this other guy, Don Derbyshire, we got fought. And um, they started to take more openly racist politics. I guess you could say, you know, they always had racist politics, but they really started, you know, going full on, like, pro-white, um, pro-white type rhetoric, um, talking about stuff like phrenology and trying to bring back race science. And so... You basically have, a, I guess, the ultimate figure in this kind of circle is Jared Taylor and his American Renaissance think tank. And then, um, so I guess it was kind of this mix of racist, isolationist conservatism, and then these just anti-feminist, anti-SJW incels online. I don't, <laughs> and it, it all kind of, uh, it all kind of conjoined with the Trump campaign, I think, into this whole, um, we could all kind of rally around Trump and unite around Trump, even if they weren't, all, even if they didn't all agree on all the issues, even if all of them weren't pure anti-Semites or pure white nationalists, you know, they could all, you know, get behind Trump in general because he was, you know, so brazenly anti-liberal and whatnot and nationalist. But um, what I've, what's kind of happening now is after Trump has He's kind of basically become like a boring neocon in a lot of ways. Like he hasn't delivered on the promises that he's delivered that he was promising. Like he's basically ended up, you know, being just like George Bush 2.0, but like with crazy antics on Twitter. And so because of that, I guess the alt-right is kind of now fighting it. You know, there's a lot of infighting now because... You have the people who are, you know, like I said, the maggot chuds, and they're still, like, just blindly supporting Trump. And they'll, they'll defend whatever Trump does. You know, they still love Milo. And then you have, you know, the actual, like, white nationalists alt-right, like Richard Spencer's wing, who claim to be the true alt-right. As Richard Spencer, I guess, he has this very proprietary, prop, very, uh, prop, prop, pri- I don't know what I'm saying. He treats it like it's his property, basically, like the alt-right. He thinks that it's hit, like hit, he coined the term, and so he owns the movement, so he gets to define what's truly alt right. And for him, like 
it's it's not true alt-right unless you're a you know an implicit white nationalist and you name the Jew. So he kind of sees it as like there's a you know, they need to break with uh, these kind of you know Trump supporters, which is interesting because at first they kind of they were trying to um, almost be like the vanguard of the Trump movement. Like that's what they were kind of talking about in that uh, NPI press conference that um, got famous because people were doing sig hiles at one point and that kind of broke um, the alt right into um, the mainstream, I guess, made Richard Spencer a more publicly known figure. Trump still sort of appeals to the alt, to the, at least alt light side of the alt right. Yeah, generally, in his like in his recent speech in Poland, you can tell that it was written by like Steve Bannon or someone like that, with the talk of like clash of civilizations, sort of rhetoric going on with the the capital W West, which is sort of interesting when you think about it. It's kind of like how Hillary Clinton uses the uses terms like in used like terms terms like intersectionality during her campaign and made appeals to like this sort of um left i guess like on a superficial level like incorporating some of the rhetoric but no never really like actually doing anything in policy much like trump trump has done so far yeah, there was just kind of this hope amongst the alt-right that Trump was just going to come into office and go full Pinochet and just get rid of this SJW leftist problem and, you know, save the white race. And obviously, you know, that's not what he is. He's, you know, just an edgy conservative. But, uh, I mean, there are certain, like, imperatives to capitalism and how to sort of manage capital accumulation at this particular point in history that, you know, nobody else, nobody can really uh, resolve without fundamentally changing the system. And so like anybody who gets in office or gets in power is going to basically just have to kind of, I guess you could say virtue signal on all of the things that their base cares about and then just do that while they kind of, you know, administer, you know, the same kind of administer capitalism more or less yeah. as, as, as previous administrations have, but with maybe different emphasis in different areas. Yeah, because I think there there isn't a need for a Pinochet type figure. You know, there isn't capitalism doesn't need national socialism or whatever. Like, you know, these fringe groups who are hoping to kind of ride Trump to victory and uh, become like make make um, white nationalism mainstream haven't really. They've gotten some popularity boosted, but Trump has not turned out to be their guy. He's very well, dis- yeah. People hasn't. Like you know, sided with Assad enough. They all, they all like Assad, for example. People being shitty to professors and engaging like in lengthy, you know, sort of identitarian games on Tumblr isn't like a threat to you know the governing institutions of our society. So you don't need like a Pinochet to come in and restore order because people are engaged in like these you know sort of you know cultural wars you know online. Like nobody gives a shit, <laughs> you know. Yeah, the way I look at it is that the whole culture war thing is kind of just an infight within the petty bourgeoisie. I think Patrick kind of was saying that another time we were talking. But, um, you know, it's basically like the right wing and the left wing of the petty bourgeois have been fighting each other basically over stupid cultural nonsense. And, you know, I don't think... And the thing is, like, this liberal intersectionality, like, I guess, left liberalism or whatever you want to call it, left neoliberalism, it's completely compatible with capitalism. So there's no need for capital to stomp out, you know, the intersectionalist professors or whatever and basically, I don't know, have some kind of dictatorship against uh, the left because the left isn't strong enough. But there is, you know, there is this kind of alienation and desire that kind of has radicalized some people but in the wrong kind of way i think like a desire for something new that isn't mainstream liberalism right i mean but why 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 do you think we are so fascinated by the alt-right because it comes up a lot on this podcast especially when we talk about current events i mean i guess in some ways like via tripe or via trump they're sort of um attached to the zeitgeist in a weird sort of way but i don't know it keeps coming up a lot well, I think 
Uh, they are kind of, in a way, attached to the zeitgeist in the same way that um, the whole SJW phenomena is. In the sense that um, when you have like depoliticization in society, this is what happens to politics in a way, I think. Huh. Is that it becomes yeah. just like narcissism of small differences and stuff. And it fractures into like different identities basically fighting each other. Yeah, like you see it like in the whole like, you know, Ghostbusters War of 2016. Where like Ghostbusters suddenly became like this weird political issue, where, um, you know, the all like people on the right or alt right were like attacking Ghostbusters because, you know, it was all women and how dare how dare they do this to Ghostbusters, and then the other people were defending it the opposite way like we have to go out and see Ghostbusters to prove that these people don't have influence, you know. Yeah, it, that like was maybe one that of was dumbest really things. Yeah, yeah, it's. It's hollow consumer and media spectacles that's really driving politics right now. Well, and it's funny how little import this stuff has too, because like the alt right, nobody remembers this, you know, because it's way back in 2015. But I think the alt right tried to do that with like the Force Awakens too. Like they, yeah, you know, they, they did. Like, they did. But yeah. no, literally that movie made like a billion dollars, and like nobody gave a shit, which you know just really shows like how much import like this stuff actually really has. Yeah. Well, when I say it's driving politics, I don't mean actual policies at this point. I mean, like, sort of a discourse surrounding politics, like policy, I guess. Right. Yeah. I mean, that Trump speech in Poland, that was kind of almost like Spanglerian. Like, it was almost like the Klein of the West type stuff. You know, it was it was pretty scary. I heard the whole speech. But, um, like I said, I don't think that it's going to fundamentally, like, show a change in uh how foreign policy is done and it's not i don't think it's going to like bring about this like insane like isolationist white identitarian like society like um what what spencer and his people really want is this, like a white ethno state and they never say how they plan on achieving this you know they they obviously say oh we don't want to do violence to anyone well you know and that's obviously not going to happen but um I don't know, they have, they generally, like, they see culture as, like, the battlefield of where you fight this stuff. And I think it's somewhat influenced by what they see the left as having done, because they think that the left has kind of taken over the cultural institutions. And so they think that because the left controls the cultural institutions, now they have to, you know, fight them for control of the cultural institutions. And they always um, quote, uh, I don't know, what's his name, Breitbart, about how you know, politics flows downstream from culture. And so... They think that these kind of meme wars and Twitter wars are actually eventually going to influence politics, basically. I mean, it's possible if, you know, because it's sometimes it's less a matter of, you know, how many people read you and it's more a matter of who reads you. You know what I mean? So, like, if, you know, if these people get the attention and convince people who eventually kind of become you know, those sort of lizard people who are in charge of politics, their policies, like in major institutions, you know, that could end up actually having some influence down the road. But, you know, the people who tend to head major bureaucratic, both state and private institutions tend to be pretty conservative and reactionary anyway. So, yeah, uh, the interesting thing with Trump's speech is, is the fact that it also, like, not only appeals to sort of the alt-right people but it also sounds vaguely neocon like that sort of clash of clash of civilizations rhetoric also fits within neocon ideology too so it's it's still concerning obviously but it's it's also somewhat within the status quo yeah i mean what i mean so I, I, somebody somebody released to like drop like a balance sheet of like what Trump has actually done, you know, so far this year and, yeah. you know, how that really compares with like other administrations. Cause he had his 100 day plan and like none of that shit happened. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I guess there is the Muslim ban, which is, you know, obviously in line with the kind of white nationalist mentality, but I don't, I, I, I don't know how, what the progress on that has been. I know that they tried to reinstate it recently in the Supreme court approve it but honestly i can see the same thing being done by george w bush you know 
it's it's just that because it's Donald Trump doing it and because he uses a lot of this edgy rhetoric that it's more um that it's seen as a like kind of just fascism, I guess. Right. Like basically Richard Spencer actually kind of pointed that out in like that conf in that conference. Like a lot of the things that we've already done that we've done to like Muslims, it has, we've like Trump has talked about doing to Muslims. We've already pretty much done. We already like target Muslims in terms of like watch lists and that sort of thing. Yeah. And yeah, so it, in, yeah, it's like this whole idea that Trump was this anti-establishment candidate who's going to bring about this totally, almost like a revolution. You know, some people, you know, drain the swamp. You know, bring in a, a real, uh, make America great again, rebirth the nation, and all this nonsense. Like they're very disappointed. I mean, I guess a lot of people aren't disappointed. They still just like slavishly like defend Trump, but yeah, I mean, there's going to be a certain percentage of people who, and I think like. There's a certain like forty percent of his supporters who will like defend what he does pretty much no matter what, who are just completely all in. Or maybe it's I forget what the percent. Somebody did a study recently. There's a certain percentage of the population that will pretty much support Trump no matter what he does. So, you know, those people you have to kind of write off for you know give the give them up for dead essentially. But you know, there's a lot of other people who, you know, if you actually press them on the things that matter and the things that, you know. You know, you could point out, for instance, that Goldman Sachs, he appointed like, what, five Goldman Sachs executives, you know what I mean? Like he's doing deals with Saudi Arabia, you know, all that stuff. I mean, there's plenty of things that people, you know, supported him because they saw him as being a break with the status quo, you know, and it, but it really fundamentally isn't like, you know, and that's the thing too, is that's the thing that we sort of have to keep hammering home is that, yeah, I mean, in many ways, like Trump regime is fascist, but it was already fascist. Like it was fascist before. Yeah, if it was, if Trump is so fascist, you know, America has been fascist for a long ass time. <laughs> yeah, like like the evil, think... the evil was already here. I mean, it's just yeah. It, now it's just like more incompetent and entertaining than it was before. Yeah, and I think um, I don't know if there is any kind of rising fascism. It's kind of maybe in these street fights against Antifa that have been popping up. You know, the right wing has a rally, and Antifa shows up to stop it, and then some big street fight erupts, you know, and uh, the alt-right people videotape it and say, show, look at these, you know, tolerant leftists, so much for the tolerant left, you know, and uh, but the thing is, like, the alt-right, you know, these MAGA chuds and alt-righters and oath-keeper types, they haven't been able to unite on a street, just for street battles lately. Like for example, like the Oath Keepers kicked that one um, at one of those rallies. Like the Oath Keepers had like a, a yeah, spew the, with that one guy who had yeah, memes. these are these are good memes guy. Yeah, yeah. And um, what about the memes? No blood for Israel. We can all. You, I came shit. out here to. to this is about to, our monument. Dude, Antifa's not taking the monument down. Look, you look, 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 that's anti-communism. I don't care, this isn't about anti-communism. It's about the fucking monument. What about the memes? No blood for Israel. What about the memes? No blood for Israel. What's the problem here? I just signed on my pants. What's the one you signed? No, it's because of her. She keeps following me and telling people that I'm, like, I'm a little agitated. I told you to get the fuck out. These are good memes. Dude, this is Comic-Con. Yeah, and so, um, I guess, like, all the alt-right, um, talking heads have been calling the Oath Keepers the Oath Cuckers. Yeah. And, uh, Richard Spencer actually made an analogy of third-period Stalinism, saying that the alt-light is actually a bigger danger than Antifa right now. That, that if the alt-right wants to, like, basically remain pure, it needs to distance themselves from, uh, people like Milo and Gavin McInnes and people like that. And make a clean break from them, and show that they're very true, like white nationalists who will call out the Jew or whatever. That's like incredibly stupid, though, because it seems like so much of this stuff operates basically by, and like they like bring people in by like hammering away at like the insecurities of the young white men, you know. So if you don't yeah. have like you don't have like, they have like those gateway drugs, like you're not going to get them up, you know. If if you just go and like find like some random teenager and be like Jews are doing it. 
He's gonna look at you like you're a fucking idiot. And you, yeah, you are. If you, if you lure them in with like, aha, we'll get these social justice warriors. They're so crazy. Or no, but if it starts before that, like it starts with like you know, uh, like you're a manlet. If you're under, if you if you don't grow to be higher than six feet tall, you might as well kill yourself. You know, or it's or if it's like uh, you can't get laid because there's women are all sleeping with with uh, chads and black men. You know, like it's it's yeah. like. Yeah, it starts with that, and then you start getting into the kind of anti-feminist subculture on YouTube or whatever. But yeah, I think without what Richard Spencer calls the alt-light, nobody would eventually get to, like, Richard Spencer-level politics, I think. like, And so in a way, they kind of are, like, you know, they are kind of, like, biting their own, like, enemies in a way. Yeah, they're biting the hand that feeds them, or they're... they're... Yeah. Yeah, they are cutting up, maybe cutting off their nose to spite their face. Like it's, it's yeah. So good for them. They should do that because yeah, it's it's. I'm happy to see that happen. Yeah, because I just and there, there's also infighting within the alt right proper. Like there's this other guy who's like a big intellectual, quote unquote, figure, Greg Johnson, who um was kind of one of the uh, people who was talking a lot about white nationalism before it kind of became popular. And him and Richard Spencer used to, like, work together, but now they're, like, fighting each other and suing each other and stuff over people, like, embezzling funds and stuff. I don't really know the full story, but it's it's just a shit show. And, I don't know, it's, it's pretty entertaining if you go on some of the forums and see people, like, arguing about it and calling each other cucks and stuff. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I think... Infowars kind of fits into this as a gateway drug, too, to some of the harder white nationalist stuff. Because Alex Jones himself is is anti-racist in a weird way. Like, he had David Duke on his show, and he was, like, denouncing David Duke for his racism and complaining about Jews too much. Yeah, well, it's, it's weird because, you know, some of this sort of has been allowed to fester because the left has kind of watered down, like, the meaning of racism. And I think that a lot of this stems, it stems from a couple things. Because it seems, I'm not, I guess I'm not an expert on this, but, you know, like racism is an ideology. And like any ideology, it is partially rooted in material and social relations in the world, right? And so like that ideology is going to reproduce itself as a result of those material and social relations. But you could say that like a racist proper is somebody who believes that you know, biological race is a thing and that society should be organized accordingly. And so, like, by that definition of racism, there aren't nearly as many racists as there used to be. But because the ideology of racism has had sort of world historical determinations whose social and material effects are still being felt today, there's going to be a lot of people who, well, they don't consciously subscribe to, you know, race science they will have views that are informed by racism and thus, yes. in a sense, be racist. Like, you'll have just, like, your typical, like, you know, suburban dad who hates Black Lives Matter and thinks they're just, you know, a bunch of thugs, you know, and terrorists and stuff like that. And they'll just, you know, say horrible things about black people. They're like, well, I'm not a racist. I have a black friend and what, you know. And uh, even Richard Spencer, like, he claims that he's not a white supremacist. He just, he... he he just wants separation, you know? Right. He, he loves all cultures, and he wants them to have their own culture, just separate, you know? But, um... Well, and... Yeah, there's this kind of... But, there, but there's this kind of conflating of the two, because, you know, like, when everyone who fits into the second category is basically rhetorically lumped in with everyone who's in the first category, even though those two things are of differing degrees, you know? Like... It's and not that not to like excuse people in like category B or whatever, but you know that kind of racism I think is fundamentally different from somebody who you know somebody that you'll see like on 4chan like actively like promoting race science and saying you know what I mean like yeah Alex Jones his stardom has been uh, outshined by fucking Paul Joseph Watson Watson as of late because Paul Joseph Watson has been more clearly able to tap into the whole anti-social justice, anti-feminism sort of mentality that's popular on YouTube and the internet in general. 
Yeah, like InfoWars has kind of become Paul Joseph Watson's thing, more of an Alex Jones's thing. And he really has geared it in this kind of anti-social justice, anti-Antifa um, or whatever um, direction, pro-civic like, pro nationalism, I guess. Because it's, it's not so much racial nationalism as it is civic nationalism that a lot of these people endorse. Like someone like Spencer is an ethno-nationalist and they want an ethno-state. Whereas people like, I don't know, Alex Jones or Gavin McInnes or... Or Mike, the Oath Keepers. Or Oath Keepers, yeah. They, want, you know, they might want more white people in the country through immigration policies, but they don't want like an ethno-state, basically. They just want a stronger form of patriotism in America. Right, yes. The alt right tends to be like more libertarian. Well, the alt right, the hard alt right tends to be more openly fascist or third positionist. Yeah, like they'll actually defend like socialistic policies against, and people will fight over that. Like the more libertarian part of the alt right will be like, "Oh man, Richard Spencer's a communist. He believes in nationalized healthcare and stuff like that." Like, just really, uh, you know, stupid arguments. Yeah. But and. And then you have sort of like the intellectual predecessors of like the alt-right and neo-reaction. They're basically just edgy libertarians for the most part. Like you have um, Nick Land, who who was a who was like a nihilist essentially, like an accelerationist nihilist, like heavily influenced by Deleuze and that sort of thing. That ended up like having a mental breakdown essentially leaving academia moving to moving to the east fucking asia's fucking sh and like writing propaganda for china for a while and then eventually well, I didn't know he wrote propaganda for china yeah he wrote it That's in like crazy. an english newspaper that they have yeah <laughs> he was really big into that for some reason he lives in china now like I think Singapore specifically, not like mainland. Singapore, Singapore. No, Singapore not, is its own country. Not, right? not or is Singapore. it Hong Kong where he lives? I, I because I know um, the, all all the dark enlightenment people are kind of obsessed with uh, Hong Kong. Yeah, I think I think it's like either. I'm forgetting where he lives. Yeah, whatever. He's, I know he's in boring Southeast. <laughs> Yeah, Southeast Asia, but basically he came around to, like, libertarianism and, like, through, like, Austrian school stuff, that sort of thing, and then he became, like, dark enlightenment through, like, racial realism and that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. And the realization that libertarianism as an ideology can only really work as, like, a white supremacist ideology. Yeah, there is basically, like, a lot of those alt-right today are former Ron Paulers. And they basically got really into the whole libertarian ideology. And then I guess they came to this um, conclusion that if you want to have, you know, libertarianism actually work, you need to have an all-white state that's few, that has strong patriarchal values and whatnot. And, that's, and if that happens, then markets will, like, magically work and everything will work out. But right now, civilization itself is kind of being eroded by, you know, anti by um, democracy itself and feminism and racial egalitarianism and all these things are basically causing the crisis of society rather than capitalism itself. Yeah, this can sort of be traced back to libertar American libertarianism's roots in like confederate slave ideology and anti-civil rights sort of uh, stuff that was done. Yeah. yeah. Like the whole, like I said, it was kind of like these racist paleocons. You know, they've been around forever, and they kind of they were never able to get like a mass audience because they're just old, boring white dudes. But when like the whole GamerGate thing and the whole kind of weird online 4chan culture started like intersecting with them, then like these people started getting an audience. You know. Well, it kind of goes back before that. I think I think it goes back to the neocons, because you know the neocons basically. You know, they did Iraq, which pretty much everyone at this point agrees was like a huge, huge, huge blunder. And on the right, the only people who were kind of offering any alternative position to that were the paleocons. And so that gave them, you know, a certain degree of like cred amongst, I think, you know, like the younger generations. 
Yeah. And that kind of like sort of drew people into that because, you know, like you can look at Ron Paul in any of the presidential debates in 2008 or even 2012. Like he, he seemed to be the only person making any sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the, the paleo Collins definitely, I think, um, it, yeah, it, it was basically a revolt against neoconservatism from within the right wing. I think like the, that's how Richard Spencer himself describes it. He says, you know, I hated neoconservatism. I was against the Iraq war and I wanted to make a type of conservatism that was not George W. Bush style conservatism. That wasn't just about America and the constitution, but something that truly tapped into like, I don't know what eventually be, would be white nationalism and white identitarianism. Well, and I think there's another, cause you know, like every period of reaction, I think uh, tends to follow some kind of like failed revolution. And I think there's a part of this too, that often gets overlooked and that's uh, occupy because a big part of what a big part of occupy was started by anonymous and where did anonymous come out of? It came out of 4chan, right? So you get all like these 4chan nerds and Guy Fox masks trying to basically start an Egyptian style revolution in the United States. And so they go and they go to these public squares and they try to have like these kind of uh, voluntarist demonstrations and almost like quasi, almost like a, almost hoping, because a lot of people are talking about and hoping for some kind of quasi push against existing civic institutions. But who do they meet out there when they get there? They meet uh, intersectional feminists who are deeply concerned about, you know, the sort of like white male presence and are bringing out all this vocabulary that, you know, is designed, you know, really shape the culture of Occupy in a big way. And there was, you know, there, there was like a huge clash of tension there and the whole thing eventually dissolves. So then these nerds like go back and they're playing video games. And then all of a sudden the same Bitches that came out and ruined Occupy are here to ruin our video games. And then, and then you get Gamergate and, you know, and so on and so forth. And then now Donald yeah. Trump is president. I think that's, that's, I think that's honestly probably correct because so much of this stuff is a, um, it is a reaction to intersectional feminism. And I mean, I think some people do kind of, uh, they, they kind of focus on that thesis too much. Like uh, Michael Rechtenwald kind of is like, oh, the intersectional SJWs are creating the alt-right, you know, as if they were solely responsible just because they wanted to discuss, you know, feminist issues. And privilege and so forth, yeah. Yeah, but I think a problem is just the way that, you know, liberals look at race and gender as just a result of, like, microaggressions and interpersonal behaviors, and they have no real materialist theory of gender and race like Marxists have. And so... From there, it's just total uh, shitstorm. Yeah, and I should be clear. I mean, I'm not saying like feminists, like I'm not going to sit here and say feminists were to occupy, but I'm just trying. To, I'm trying to imagine how these guys must have perceived what happened, you know, and because it's like it's like the same the same culture that you know wanted to like imitate an Egyptian style political revolution, you know, now is you know, like obsessed with Jews and like white genocide and shit like that. So. Just trying to like figure out how. Well, you had like people at Occupy camps talking about Jews and like. That's true. That's true. That's true. The whole bankster thing, like the whole ninety-nine percent versus one percent narrative, did lend itself to this kind of like, the Jews are in control. Like the Jews are the one percent who dominate everything. Yeah, it easily lent itself to that kind of narrative. Yeah, and they were Ron Paul people too. Yeah. Basically, any sort of like vulgarized leftism like that lends itself to like going from like structural anti-Semitism to just straight up anti-Semitism. Yeah. And there were lizard people there too. I remember David Icke made some videos at Zuccotti park. I mean, every, everybody was on that bandwagon to an extent. Yeah. Uh, also, I would, I would sort of object to like the idea that like, you know, that like um the fork, these sort of 4chan slash poll people were actually deeply involved in Occupy. Like, a lot of these people were, like, disenchanted with politics in general when Occupy was around. Like, Anonymous was losing speed, like, like, during that time period. Like, it was less popular among that crowd. 
because it was being filled with like normies who actually cared about things and weren't really into pranks and that sort of thing and wanted it to be political and the general culture of 4chan at the time was like strongly anti-politics and anti-caring in general yeah but i do think occupy was kind of this moment where people got out of the house and like actually experienced political discourse for a first time in their life for a lot of people and like like jake said everyone came out basically all different parts of the political spectrum kind of came out for it yeah i mean the weird the weird tendency towards like generally apathy and like nihilism within 4chan within like 4chan board like slash poll and slash b and whatever like it tended it like morphed into like the alt-right though in a weird way yeah there's this sense of like being transgressive for the sake of being transgressive and some people have actually like tied this to may 68 culture or whatever which i don't really know if it's very accurate but there is this like there is this culture of just being edgy for the sake of being edgy and when the majority of people in society aren't anti-Semites and aren't racist, the easiest way to be edgy is to be an anti-Semitic racist and, you know, say insane things like, oh, we need Sharia law, but for white people. Yeah. And that, that is kind of, you know, the only way that some of these people can be edgy anymore or funny is just through being offensive. Yeah, it's basically, let's piss off these white feminist yuppies by ironic racism only will will stop being ironic eventually yeah yeah the the ultimate way to piss them off is to actually mean it (laughs) yes and so they just get like a a huge kick out of kind of the liberal reaction to the alt-right even if it's not this huge mass movement that actually is influencing politics the liberals reaction to it does tend to overemphasize how powerful it is well, and you see that like playing out on a macro level level now with Trump, you know, like every everything like you you know that whole thing where um somebody made that uh, gif of Trump when he was in the WWE briefly. Oh my God, what's and then they they beat somebody up on the side of a ring and then they like uh, use after effects to put CNN over the person's face he was beating up. Right. And then Trump retweeted it. And then I guess CNN threatened to dox the guy who created the original GIF. Yeah. All of a sudden like everyone in the alt-right was against doxing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. Right. But it, it does say something that like people are, because like people were genuinely, there were, I saw liberals who were genuinely freaked out. Like this is disturbing. Yeah, I just it was something like that, but it, it's like it's so blatantly ridiculous. I mean, how could it? Yeah, it was just this ridiculous ass thing that you posted, and this kind of like ups getting us so ridiculously upset about this kind of stuff is what gives Trump supporters the illusion that they're somehow anti-establishment and you know part of some kind of like transgressive movement. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, like, like liberals tend to be obsessed with this notion of like presidential, like presidentiality and sort of being a professional politician who has like dignity and grace and whatever decorum Decorum. like it's basically about being super polite polite and that sort of thing rather than actually having like a legitimate ideology or whatever and trump isn't like trump isn't really polite he's like an entertainer essentially well, not even like Reagan. He's like a a reality show star. He was a reality show star, essentially. He was a reality show star, and he acts like a reality show star even now. Yeah, he understands, and like like any good like reality TV star, like Kim Kardashian, any of those people, like he understands how to like use social media to leverage his brand. <laughs> you know, like that's that's what that's what all this is, really, in a bizarre sort of way. Yeah. Yeah, and I think. I mean, what are you gonna say, Patrick? I think that gives Trump a little too much credit. I think he just naturally does things that gets people's attention. Like, oh, no, I, don't... I think I think it's calculated. I mean, look, he's a, he. I mean, 
I think he's probably on the same intellectual level as like Kim Kardashian. You know what I mean? Like it's basically doing the same thing. Uh, but it's just that nobody ever thought to like try and like apply it to politics before. <laughs> I mean, there was Berlusconi, I think. I think Berlusconi kind of was uh, the Italian Trump, at least. But was he, was he like active on Twitter in the same way? And like, oh uh, he... no, Trump. Trump's definitely taking it to a new level. But yeah, I think there was some precedent for this kind of like celebrity reality TV style politics, but. I don't know. Yeah, but this, 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 yeah, this really is like another level because uh, I think I read an interview with Naomi Klein where she was basically arguing that so much of like the Trump brand is this idea of power through wealth and that um, that's why he can get away with so much of what he gets away with because like, you know, anytime the things that people like attack him for, like he won't divest from his businesses. It's like, well, no, he's, 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 he's powerful because of his wealth. And like, he's created, it's, it's so much of like, he's kind of tied in, in a way to like this kind of, you know, the sort of like self-help or like, uh, you know, sort of a pornography of success that, or that, you know, pe that people hawk in this country to, you know, a disaffected unemployed population. You know, and that that brand that he sells is sort of integral to, you know, what people like about him. Well, it's just there's just in this sense in neoliberal theory actually, there's this idea that the government is less efficient at doing things in the market, and because Trump didn't come out of politics, but came out of business, he was kind of able to place like paint himself as an anti-establishment outsider. You know, even though he was a huge businessman who had been making dealings with politicians, et cetera, et cetera, and he was part of, he, a part of the establishment, because he was a capitalist rather than a professional politician, you know, he was able to basically present himself as a rebellion against the status quo of the, you know, liberal bureaucrats or whatever. I, I know this is like our like alt-right watch episode, but can we talk for a minute about Macron? Uh, Emmanuel Macron, because that dude, that dude scares the shit out of me. <laughs> oh, yeah, he says that he wants to turn France into, like, a startup nation. <laughs> yeah, and, like, he, I guess there was a Bastille Day uh, press conference that the that the guy, usually, president, usually gives, but he didn't give it because he thought his thoughts on the monarchy would be, quote-unquote, too complicated for journalists to handle. Well, this, this is, like, a lot of the uh, ideologists of neoliberalism, they kind of trace everything that's evil to the French Revolution. And there's a sense that um, this whole idea that the sovereignty of the people should rule is like the, the kind of germ that brings about terror and you know, political chaos, you know? Isn't and, that kind of isn't that basically like what the like neo reactionaries believe too, essentially? Yeah. It's it's interesting how all all these ideologies overlap in different ways. But there there's definitely this this tendency in like mainstream history lately where basically um you know revolutionaries are uh, you know basically these just these intellectuals of crazy ideas who get into power and then fuck everything up and so really it's we should have slow gradual change and respect for markets and rule of law and so i can see like a neoliberal like macron not wanting to celebrate the french revolution because you know, it kind of does represent, you know, this populist type of, um, you know, mass politics that is very counter to the neoliberal ideology. Yeah, well, and that, but what's so stupid about that is, like, when has there been a faction in power that didn't have some kind of theory behind it? <laughs> like, it's never happened, you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, intel like intellectuals always have some influence on the machinations of power. And yeah. they, they pretty much always fuck it up because, you know, that's kind of like, that's kind of history. Yeah, I mean, there's like the historical tradition I'm talking about is like Francois Ferre, Richard Pipes, Ernst Nolte, who are basically highly anti-communist liberals who veer on anti-democratic almost type reactionary positions you know yeah yeah i'm telling you what i really i'm like i didn't i didn't like this like macron i mean obviously le pen is like a nightmare too but like this guy like isn't much better <laughs> the way things are shaping up yeah jesus christ and like i think he, he said he wanted like a jupiterian like presidency or whatever oh yeah like, that, something like that oh my god war, that warhammer 40k kind of god emperor sort of thing
Yeah, can you imagine if Trump said some shit like that? Like what the reaction would be? Yeah, but of Good course, it, because it's Macron, it's it's really woke and cool. Like all the dumb centrists, like Hillary Clinton, fucking shit heads who are still around are like, yeah, Macron, Macron's the best, you know, it's great. Yeah, it's like it's he's what that... we could have instead of Trump, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, just fucking over unions and shit no, like no that. Wo- no wonder nobody voted in their fucking election. Yeah, I think most of the reason people voted for Macron was to keep uh, Le Pen out of office because, you know, uh, Le Pen did represent this uh, very reactionary tendency in French politics. It's just that Macron is politically correct and she isn't, you know. Yeah, so just fuck that guy. I just I can't like it's. Yeah, like that actually, that actually, that stuff, you know, usually I feel like I'm kind of like above, you know, politics or whatever, and I don't really give a shit about some of this stuff. But like that guy, I like, I feel the revulsion for that guy that like people feel for Trump, like on like the liberal side, like in the United States. You know, I think really to be a Marxist, you know, because I mean, it's it, it sounds like sometimes the way we talk, like we don't take Trump seriously or, you know, Trumpism or any of this, you know, we're just kind of like poo-pooing it or quote-unquote like normalizing it or whatever. But I think like for us, you know, like we see like deeper structural forces in, you know, like the capitalist like world system that are already evil and deeply intractable and are ever, ever present pretty much no matter who's in office and literally no matter who's in office. And so... Like a lot of this stuff, Clinton, Trump, Macron, Le Pen, to me, often just looks like rearranging deck furniture on the Titanic. You know, it's hard. I, it's it's hard for me to get super freaked out about which one of these assholes is going to be in charge, unless maybe you get somebody who. I can feel some level of sympathy for like a Corbyn figure or whatever, but even, even they haven't really presented like a meaningful alternative to capitalism there. At least they haven't tried to sell it to anybody. So, yeah, I think what is worrying about the alt-right is that it does a record kind of show how reactionary a lot of people in America are, I guess. Like it has really moved a lot of people to the far right and, I don't know how many really to say, but there is definitely this tendency amongst, I guess, just normal like white suburban kids to get into this stuff. Like, you know, there's a lot of people who like Milo and, you know, listen to Milo and, you know, he gets big crowds when he goes to colleges, you know? Yeah. The, I think, I think really there's, um, because anti-feminism really kind of fed into a lot of this, I think what makes the alt-right kind of unique compared to other forms of right-wing reaction is how much emphasis there is on kind of patriarchalism and bringing back kind of traditional family values because there is, you know, capitalism does erode the traditional family patriarchy in a way. It doesn't destroy it, but it does kind of, it makes it no longer like the central point of production. And so there is this sense where the family is eroded. And so you see these, you know, sexually frustrated white males who want to bring back the patriarchy because they think they're not getting what's theirs anymore because of this erosion of family values. So I, I discovered today, I mean, I knew it existed, but I started looking a lot at um, r slash incel. Oh my God, I'm sorry. Oh, oh it's, 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 it's hilarious and it's fascinating though because, you know, so much of this, so much of it is, because they're into like the black pill now. Which is like it's it's not the red pill. It's like the it's like basically total it's nihilism. nihilism. Yeah, and but you know so much of this is like symptomatic of kind of deeper social alienation. That's like a byproduct of capitalism, and a lot of what they complain about, I think, is you know in some ways the result of kind of being halfway between you know like feudal like the the old like feudal social relations of past society of pretty much completely dissolved but there isn't like a new egalitarian system to replace them what you have is like the mercenary forces of the market and the social atomization of capitalism now some people some people can get by in that system socially quite well but other people can't and the people who are left out 
you know, don't really have a lot of options. And so, you know, this, this leaves them open to, you know, appeals from people who say, well, you know, if we just kind of bring back the old patriarchal, you know, social order, then, you know, and it's, it's a lot of it, at least the stuff I was looking at, isn't even that well developed. A lot of it is just kind of resentment and envy and hatred of women, but also really like a lot of self hatred. It's um and like kind of like internalized, like internalized uh, self loathing. Um, yeah. as a result of like their own sense of, correctly or not, I don't know because you don't know what these, any of these people look like, but they all claim to be like extremely ugly. Yeah. One of the things with the underlying, one of the underlying, one of the things that the Enlightenment was supposed to do was to break down the social relations that were holding humanity back and patriarchy, whatever, that sort of thing, monarchy, that like feudalism, that sort of thing, like holding humanity back and creating new social relations that would bring us closer together and that were voluntary and free. It, it, it definitely fulfilled the first part of breaking down old social relations, but instead of, but instead of like creating new social relations and communities, it's just left us atomized, isolated from each other. Yeah, there's there's definitely this atomization of the liberal subject as a result of everybody's competing with each other in the marketplace. And so we're all basically individual legal atomized subjects in the society. And so, uh, you know, that does, it creates radicalization, but it's the wrong kind of radicalization, as Mike McNair said. It's kind of like the same kind of radicalization that leads the people to join ISIS, for example. Well, yeah, and it's like in a in a in a you know I guess in a society where you know I guess like dating has been sort of in like a Tinder based like dating society, you know, like people who are have you know kind of superficially attractive qualities will tend to thrive in that system, and people who don't won't, you know, and it's yeah that's bound to breed like some kind of resentment um, when you know like human social relations have been kind of completely subsumed to the market. Yeah. Um... I was listening to Red Ice Late Radio, and there was the fourth—I forget the name of the fourth political theory person. The uh, Alexander Dugan. Alexander Dugan, and he was basically talking about how individualism has like destroyed communities and destroyed the right, right, basically destroyed communities and left people like hollow on the inside and. Like this, these sort of Western values are just destroying like basic humanity overall. Yeah, and so Dugan's kind of uh, his solution to the problem is basically uh, bringing back the great mother Russia. You know, bringing kind of creating this uh, Eurasian empire. I guess is his solution to it. He wants to basically expand Russia's borders back to what they used to be. Yeah. He also wants resistance to the West, like a sort of third positionist resistance to the West. Although he won't call it third positionist, which is weird. Like, yeah, it's essentially third positionism. He's like, there's four, there, there's three main political theories, fascism, communism, and liberalism. And I've made a brand new political theory called the fourth political theory. But it's really just fascism, because that's really what it is. Like, it's, yeah. it's like basically just third positionism. Like other like far right European intellectuals influence the the alt right, like Alain de Buenard. They have they they have this kind of ideas that you could see appealing certain left wing anarchists, for example. Like they kind of want to parcelize all of Europe into smaller communities that have strong like ties to each other, and kind of decentralize everything and make it everything localized, and kind of return to um, basically feudalism. But without like the material basis for it, so yeah, like, it's, it's, it's an insane utopian idea. But yeah, it's like distribute distributism or like yeah, guild socialism. Yeah, they have these. There's this weird desire to overcome capitalism without actually, you know, creating you know worldwide communism because obviously that's degenerate universalism or whatever for these people. Just relapsing into like a utopian version of feudalism. That's it for this week. Quick correction. 
Um, and the part where we were talking about Nick Land, Patrick meant to say that he actually lives in Shanghai, which uh, that's according to um, Jacobin. So Nick Land lives in Shanghai. If you want to write to us, you can email us at swampsidechance at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes or give us a like on our Facebook page. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>